Good morning and welcome to our service today. My name is Matthew Dirksen, and I'm the youth pastor here at Arendelle Alliance Church. Uh, we have a couple announcements before we move on to prayer, and that is, as you can tell, we're in a different location. Uh, that's right, we have now moved into the sanctuary, and we'll be doing most of our recording here in the sanctuary with a few different people, uh, and the idea is to transition back here so that we have a bunch of people in the audience and a bunch of you online uh, probably the majority online uh, for now, but that is exciting. We are slowly transitioning uh, to having you all here with us, whether it's online or in person, and having that kind of mix uh, a family thing, family dynamics. So very exciting change going on, and uh, continue to pray as we try to figure out uh, these next steps. It's really confusing for all of us as to what we should do, what's the best case. Uh, so we'll be praying for uh, all of our leaders, our COVID team, as they continue to uh, prepare for the future and take steps like we are right now, today, uh, for the future of, of reopening. Uh, a few other announcements. The International Quiz Meet just happened last weekend, so thank you again for your prayerful support. Uh, we had two participants, Joanne and Willem, and they did great. And you can find the info as to how they did in the bulletin, as well as a whole blurb about quizzing. Uh, so please look in the e-bulletin for more info on that. Also, next Sunday is Communion Sunday, so prepare for that. Grab uh, some juice, a cracker, whatever you need. Uh, be prepared as next Sunday we'll be doing Communion. We also are doing a new initiative uh, with our prayer ministry. Uh, things are changing a little bit. We have a new person coordinating our prayer ministry of this church. That's Lorraine Willems. Uh, she's going to be doing a, a little bit of a new uh, take on our prayer ministry and also just centralizing it. So if you want to be involved in our prayer ministry of a church and we need all the prayer we can get, a prayer is so central to the ministry of this church, uh, please email uh, Lorraine. Her email is in the bulletin, in the e-bulletin. Email her and ask her how to get involved, how to participate in our prayer ministries here at our church. We're very excited about this new initiative and we look forward to the different ways in which uh, you will join our ministry of a, as a church through prayer. We also have one last announcement, kind of, it's not really an announcement, and it's just about COVID. It's all about this, during this time of COVID, how we'll all have different views. And in, in thinking about COVID and the tension of COVID, some wanting us to reopen uh, right now, getting the full 150 people some saying, hey, we should just not meet at all. There's lots of different views uh, that, that each one of us has. And in reflecting on this, uh, Romans 14 talks a lot about how uh, Paul's talking to the church, and he's saying, you know, you all have different views. Some people have different views when it comes to food, and when it comes to different days as to being more holy the next than, than the other. And, and it says something really important in Romans 14, which is, that make up your mind to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. And it also says that we are to make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. It continues on, um, blessed is the man who does not condemn himself for, by what he approves. Um, and it's this whole idea of some are approving some things and some are not. And we are not to look down on those who think that we shouldn't be opening. And we're not to look down on those who think we should be opening. It's about saying, hey, there's different views. We all have a different view in, in a different sense as to what we should do. And how we should all stand together in unity, uh, trying to live in peace, and just encouraging one another in our different views rather than fighting against each other. And not that we're fighting at all. But this is just a, a friendly encouragement as we're taking practical steps to reopen to be thinking about, hey, how is what I'm saying affecting um, what my brother or sister might be thinking and feeling right now uh, who is either more conservative or more liberal in their view? Uh, and, and I want to end with Romans 15, which is an amazing prayer that, that kind of takes Romans 14 all in one little gulp. And it says in 15.5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement Give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart 
and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may that be our prayer. May that be who we are, that we are a united body of believers filled with peace, who love Jesus and seek to glorify him with our heart, with our mouths. And so as, as you go through this COVID season, just remember that it's about unity. It's about seeking uh, what God wants for us, but also recognizing that people have different views. Uh, with that, let's turn to prayer. Again, as, as we've been doing, we will, uh, I'll open this up in prayer, and then I ask you just to pause and pray for the different things on our prayer needs. And uh, this week, we have different international workers. Uh, Heather is one of the ones we'll be praying for, Abe and, and Leela. Uh, we'll be praying for different Alliance churches. And so again, I ask you just to, to pause once I'm done praying and, and to pray for the different things in, uh, on the screen and also in the e-newsletter. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much uh, for who you are, that you love us, that you care deeply for us, that you've made each one of us unique, but that you are the creator of each one of us. You knit us together in our mother's womb. Lord God, thank you for making us all special, unique, and all in your image. And Lord, I ask right now that you will give us a united uh, body, a united spirit among this church, that we will all seek not to look down on those who have different opinions, but to actually encourage them in their views and be challenged by each other. Let, it, let other views challenge our views, Lord. Lord, may we sharpen one another's view for your glory, for your honor. And help us, Lord God, to do this all with humility, not holding our view above anyone else's, but just saying, Lord God, I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone, not to my brother, not to my sister, not to my neighbor, not to anyone. I just want to glorify you. Lord God, I thank you so much for all the ways you've blessed this church, all the ways you've blessed us individually as a body, the, the many blessings you've given us. We, we thank you so much for all that you've given us. And we also, Lord, recognize that there are times where we misuse your gifts. So, Lord, we confess right now the times in which we have not done as you've called us to. We've not led as you've called us to lead. We've not given when you've called us to give. You've not spoken when you've called us to speak or act when you've called us to act. And, Lord, I ask that as we continue on with our weeks and continue on with, with the days, months, who knows how long this will be with COVID, that you continue to give us wisdom as we practically live out our lives in this new world. Lord God, I pray right now that you be with our international workers and our different alliance churches across our uh, denomination, across our district. Lord, bless them. Use them to do amazing things. And Lord, I ask uh, a, that, you just, that you just use this service, Lord God, to glorify your name. That as Jordan comes to share that, Lord God, you will use the words of his mouth to change and shape our hearts. And Lord God, it's all for your glory. Not for our glory, not for the glory of this church, but for your glory. May we in turn worship you and praise you. I invite you now to pause the video and, and pray for different things in the e-newsletter.
Good morning, my name is David Torvey, and I'll be reading the Bible today. I'll be reading from the book of Amos, chapters 1 and 2, and I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. First, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the, in the days of King Uzziah of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jeshua, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion, and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore I will send fire against Hazael's palace, and will consume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus, I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon, the one who wields the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Kerr. The Lord has spoken. And now moving on to chapter 2, verses 4 to 16. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore I will send fire against Judah and will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the paths of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their Lord, their God, they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you, out, brought you from the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness, in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets, and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, Do not prophesy. Look, I am about to crush you in your place, as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift, the strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the one who is swift to foot will not save himself, and the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. Good morning and welcome to our online service. And as you notice, we're somewhere new. We have been working hard, the COVID team and the tech team have been spending hours. And I don't wanna ask some of our sound guys how many hours they have spent in this room in the last couple of days getting it ready for this. Our first service back, I believe since the 15th of March. And we are so excited, this is our first step back. People ask, when are we going to resume regular services? This is a very significant step and in the next few weeks, you'll probably see some things moving around and changing a little bit as we refine how we're doing things and we look to get it so that it's gonna be effective both for people in-house and also for those of us at home. And it's, it's strange talking about that because as I'm standing here talking, I'm saying, I'm gonna watch myself in 11 days and think, why did I say it that way? Why did I do it that way? I am so looking forward to the day when we're in here and I don't need to watch myself on videotape. Every Sunday we gather as a family and I think many of you probably have a very similar ritual and we come out and everybody's in their house coats and my wife makes coffee and we sit and we watch and every Sunday my son who has been in Bible school and had to watch himself preach on tape goes, how was it? It's a challenge, but God is good. And with this in mind, I'm going to invite you, wherever you are this morning, to turn with me to Amos chapter 1. And as you turn there, would you bow with me as we pray? Holy God, we ask that you would meet us wherever we are, whenever we are, gathered in your name. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet us? Would you come and fill us? And Lord, would you guide us as we study your word? Would you show us what you'd have us to learn? Would we be encouraged? Would we be confronted? Would we be challenged? Holy God, would you change us and use us for your glory, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amos is one of my favorite books. And if you were to talk to my students, one of my favorite courses to teach. I love teaching the minor prophets, and probably because I like minor keys, and, and I like tension, and I like, 
I, I like considering hard questions of life. For me, my call to ministry came out of Ecclesiastes with those very opening words, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I love coming to the Minor Prophets as God comes and speaks to his people. With this Amos chapter 1, we read this. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders of Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summits of Carmel wither. I love this opening. A little bit of background. The year, probably somewhere around 760 B.C. And a shadow hangs over Israel. A shadow hangs over both Israel, the northern ten tribes who split off after the reign of Solomon, and over Judah, the southern tribes that are now ruled by the house of David in contrast to the north. So we have Israel and Judah, and sometimes I'll talk about them together as Israel, and sometimes I'll talk about them as specific nations. A shadow hangs over both those countries. That shadow is the Assyrians. It's about 760 and the Assyrians are gaining power in the area. And the Israelites know that there is significant danger ahead for them because they cannot face this foe. They cannot defeat this challenge. And there are all kinds of prophetic voices coming in this time period, coming and announcing, here is who God is, here is what God is doing. And one of those voices God raises up is Amos. Amos, by his own admittance, we'll see this in a few weeks in chapter 7, is not a career prophet. He's actually a shepherd. But the word of God comes to him. In fact, the way it says here uh, that he saw the word of the Lord, what he saw regarding Israel. And there's, it, there's all kinds of debate. I've, I've read a lot of books on the minor prophets over the years. And much ink has been spilled over what I think is kind of pointless to argue about. One of them is he sees the word of the Lord. Other minor prophets, they hear the word of the Lord or they receive the word of the Lord. It's this reminder, God speaks to us differently and that is fine. The point isn't how God speaks, the point is that God does speak and how do we respond, how do we listen and engage with his word. Amos is not a career prophet, he is a farmer and the word of God has come to him and he comes and he brings this message from God. He's from about 10 miles north of Jerusalem and as he brings this message to Jerusalem and to that surrounding region, he brings a message from God who roars as a lion from Jerusalem, from God's very temple. And this great image of God, the lion, the one who will pursue. Why Jerusalem? Because God comes from his temple. And the temple will be featured in a few places in the book of Amos. But what we're going to find here is a series of judgments. And these judgments actually harken back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy, God comes, at actually a few places, not just chapter 32, and says, if you don't do what I say, here's what I'm going to do. There's covenant blessings. If you're faithful, there's covenant curses if you're not faithful. And this sits at the back of what Amos comes and shares. And what he brings from God is God, the lion that comes roaring from Jerusalem, comes to the people. And we're going to have this really interesting formula. And, and well, let's get into it. And you'll see this formula and we see it first off with Damascus. Verse 3, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sleds. Therefore, I will put fire against Hazel's palace, and it will be consumed, Ben-Hadon's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon, and the one who wields the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Kerr. The Lord has spoken. And in this particular case, we see this formula for three sins or for three crimes and for four. And it's this idiomatic expression to say they're piling on their sin. Now keep in mind, it's about 760. Israel, the northern ten tribes. Judah, the southern couple of tribes. Living in that region right along the Mediterranean. They're on a major trade route between Egypt and modern-day Europe, they have strong, powerful neighbors, and the word of God comes to them regarding Damascus. And this is still the same city of Damascus we talk about today. It, it's been continually settled now for literally thousands of years. 
probably six or 7,000 years since basically Adam and Eve, shortly after Adam and Eve, the cities formed there and Damascus has been lived in. And the word comes against Damascus. It's the capital of the empire of Aram. And they are charged. You've been excessive in war. That's what this image of you threshed. What they've done is they went too far in their zeal. And there's this idea that they're not confronted for not worshiping God because the people of Damascus, the Arameans, they don't follow Yahweh. But they are charged with common human decency kind of things. There is too far in war. There's a line that you cross where human beings know we shouldn't do this. And God says, I'm coming to get you. I'm going to take you. You're going to go into exile. As you have been too harsh to your enemies, I'm simply going to remove you. And this judgment that he promises, he answers their sin with an equal punishment. And I imagine that for Israel and for Judah, as they're hearing the word of Amos, as he comes and says, this is what God promises to do, they're probably feeling pretty good because Damascus is a bit of a problem. Sometimes the relationship was pretty good. Sometimes the relationship was tense. And that relationship will change. But at this particular time, there seems to be maybe a little bit of tension between the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and Damascus. And yes, this is the same Damascus Paul's on his way to when he's blinded and encounters Jesus. Well, that's not the only place. Verse 6, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. And we still talk about Gaza in the news because these places still exist today. Not every place we're going to talk about still exists, but Gaza does. They would have been Philistine territory in the days of Judah and of Israel. And in modern day, it's still the place we hear about in the news. And what is the charge here? The particular charge here in this case is they took some of the cities of the Edomites just along their border. And what we know historically from archaeology they were doing, they were doing raids. But the purpose of the raids wasn't warfare. There wasn't open hostility. The purpose was economics. They were going in and they were capturing these small little towns and little cities and reselling the population as slaves simply for profit. Now, slaves in the ancient world is kind of a touchy subject. And there, there were kind of bounds on it where it was seen as sort of acceptable and sort of not. You didn't want to be a slave, but it, it doesn't carry some of the connotations of today. But to simply go and raid towns only to slave them out, to go and steal these people, even in the ancient world where slavery was part of their institution, part of their system, was seen as wrong. Exodus 21.16 forbids the Israelites from doing anything like this. And it's not just the word of God. There was a broader understanding in the ancient culture. You didn't capture people simply to make money off of them. You, you've desecrated them when you do this. If there's warfare on and you take captives, that's, that's seen as different. But in this case, that's not what's happening. You're simply turning a profit. What is God going to do with them? God says, I am going to wipe you out. You are going to cease to exist. If you look down in verse 8, I will cut off the ruler of Ashdod, the one who rules with a scepter. I will turn my hand against them. The remainder of the Philistines will perish. We have people living in Gaza today. The town's still there. But they're not Philistines. Because God came and removed them. So the towns remain, but the people groups changed. God says, as you have done such a grievous thing, I will wipe you out. The Philistines have long been a thorn in the side of the Israelites, and the Israelites have long been a frustration for the Philistines at this point in history. And so you can imagine, again, Amos's audience thinking, this sounds pretty good. Damascus, taken care of. Gaza, taken care of. Verse 9. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre. For three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom. Wait, didn't we just read that? It's the same crime. As Gaza was doing, so Tyre is doing. Tyre, it's part of the Phoenician Empire. They're right on the Mediterranean. They're a major shipping company, uh, shipping um, city-state. 
but they kind of slipped into the same kind of thing that their neighbor Gaza was doing, and they're even selling them to the same people. Their sin is the same. And what is the promise here? The fire of God is coming. I want to consider for a moment, the punishment on Gaza is actually more extreme than the punishment on Tyre. Gaza, the punishment is, I'm going to remove you. You're going away and never coming back. And they do. Tyre, the promise is fire. It's a punishment, a judgment image. And we know historically, Philistines are removed completely. Their cities are populated by other peoples. Tyre is allowed to live, but they will go through a series of of very negative encounters with foreign powers who will come and will conquer them. And they're going to live through hard days. And it's interesting because there is actually a sense where what Tyre did was not seen as bad as what Gaza did. And we don't know if that's because Gaza took more or they set the tone that others followed or, or what it was that God saw. Tyre was not seen as guilty as Gaza, but both are guilty. And they're common human decency things. God hasn't come and said, well, you're not worshiping me properly. He has come to these people and said, you've not treated your fellow human beings right. And you should know better. That's really the message that's happening here. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 11. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes and for four. Because he pursued his brother with the sword, he stifled compassion. His anger tore at him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. It's kind of interesting because Edom's the one who's been buying up the slaves, but that's not where God's charge comes. We don't know. Does Edom not know where the slaves are coming from? It's quite possible they don't. You don't ask, so you don't know. But they are guilty. What is their guilt here? Edom, they are charged with being also excessive in war. You pursued your brother. You pillaged, you, ex- you, you did extraditions, you killed the people. And in fact, we know this is about 760 that this is being written. This charge to Edom is actually stepping forward in time because the best that we can tell the fulfillment of this is not till 587. Because Edom, the charge that's made here really best is understood because we know as the Babylonians came in, and think about Daniel. Daniel's carted off to Babylon, and, and Ezekiel is by the Kabar River. There's a, a couple of deportations there. In the last deportation, time of Jeremiah, the Babylonians came in. They lay siege to Jerusalem. They starved the city out for months. The city wall finally falls, and the people have been hungry, and it has been terrible. It's been awful. The Babylonians come surging through the city, level everything, destroy the temple, burn everything, cart the last of the people off into captivity, except for the poorest and the weakest of the land. They just kind of leave. They don't care about them. And they take the the last of the Israelites. It's actually their third exile off to Babylon. In the aftermath of that, after they've been starved out and it's been some of the worst days imaginable, the Edomites come in and attack Jerusalem. They're cousins. They're related if we go back to Abraham. You pursued your brother with the sword. You stifled compassion. And it's interesting that we've jumped ahead a couple hundred years in Amos' prophecy, but prophecy does this. It doesn't worry about time the way that we worry about time. But the charge that God brings against the Edomites, it's not that you've been buying slaves because maybe they don't know where they come from, but in this case, you showed no compassion to Jerusalem. The book of Obadiah is going to talk about the same thing. Isaiah 34 is also going to have reference to it. Numbers chapter 20 tells us that there's been tension there between Edom and Israel for a long time, and now it's going to spill over. And what does God say? I'm going to send fire. I'm going to consume. And he's going to bring his wrath. Again, you missed common human decency. Well, Amos goes on with his prophecy. Now it's against Amon. Another of Israel's close neighbors. I will not relent for punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Unfortunately, with the minor prophets, there's places you can't really PG-rate it because the text is what the text is, because this is how human beings treat each other. History tells us 
This has been done often. World War II, we had cases of this. It's been repeated down through the ages, and it has never been acceptable in the eyes of God. God is the one here. And interestingly with Ammon, what God says here, I will set fire to the walls. God is the one who is going to bring the fire to the walls. The phrasing in the punishments of the earlier nations kind of leaves some ambiguity here. But here, if you go back to how it's phrased in the Hebrew, God takes this one extra personal. God is particularly angry with this. And the phrasing is actually different from the other ones because the Ammonites have successfully incurred an extra measure of God's wrath because of how they've treated these women simply for territorial ambitions. God is coming to fight against them. And we know from history that they are carted off and they're never seen again because, again, they have violated common human decency. It goes on with Moab. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. After the Ammonites, this, this one is a little less serious in a sense. All sin is serious in the sight of God, but certainly some is worse than others. In this case, the charge is you have actually defiled the dead. There, there's an expectation, there's a correct way to treat someone after they are deceased, and there's an incorrect way, and even in war, there are guidelines. And again, common human decency. We have ancient codes that would talk about this. The law of God talks about this. Fire is a punishment method to kill someone. That's rarely used in Scripture. The Israelites generally didn't use it. That's seen as the very worst of the worst. Genesis 38 has a case of it. Leviticus 20 holds it out. Joshua 7, we're going to see it show up, but it's pretty rare. It's a very serious case. Here God says, you went too far. Moab and its leaders will lose in battle. But that's very different from what's said to the Ammonites, where God says, I'm coming to destroy you. And we know that they're gone and they never return. Moab is simply told, you're going to be punished by losing in war. At this point, I suspect the audience... As Amos, and perhaps he's in the marketplace proclaiming this message, perhaps uh, there's, there's a festival or a feast he's been invited to speak as he says, I think the Lord has a message and I need to share it and hear the word of the Lord. And he comes and shares. I imagine the Israelites are feeling pretty good. Judah's probably feeling pretty good. Because our enemies are being defeated. They violated rules they should know better than. And interestingly, everything we've talked about, if, if we go back to ancient codes, Code of Hammurabi and some of those things, a lot of what they're charged with here is stuff that these ancient codes said, we don't do these things. You don't go into a town simply to take slaves. If it's warfare and you take captives, we turn a blind eye to it. That's a different kind of a case. But you don't do that. You don't violate the dead. You don't treat pregnant women in warfare the way that the Ammonites have. You don't do these things. You don't sit and wait till your enemies been completely defeated and then go in and attack them again after they've been destroyed like the Edomites do. But that's not where the text stops. Verse 4 of chapter 2, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they've rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. They've been feeling really good up until this point, and I imagine Amos is going on about this nation. People are going, oh, our enemies are going to be, wait, what? Did he just say us? Yes. And there's a marked shift here. With all of these other nations that have been charged, all of them have been charged with common human decency things. God's charge to the people of Judah is very different. It is that you have violated your worship of God himself. It's not crimes against humanity. It's a violation of God's covenant. And God promises that Israel, Judah, is not innocent and he is going to punish her. I will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. It's interesting that that's said because that's actually exactly what the Babylonians are going to do. Judah is going to repent after this, sort of, 
And then they're going to sin again, then they're going to repent, sort of. But eventually, ultimately, Amos' word comes true. And God says, you've sinned too many times, enough is enough, and Judah will be cut off. Judah will go into exile, the Babylonians will come and take her away, and she will be in Babylon for 70 years. No temple, no city walls, no vineyards, no promised land. The prophet Ezekiel talks about, we're by the Kabar River, and he's explaining to people, we're here because we sinned. God's word is sure. It's 200 years later, but it is sure. He said he would do this 250 years later, 260 years later, 280 years later. It doesn't matter when. When God says it, it's going to happen. Judah, you're going into exile. Your city's going to be destroyed. So the prophecies here of the foreign nations have not meant that Judah's been seen as innocent. And it doesn't stop there either. And actually, Judah's really not the focus of Amos. We're going to spend most of our time in the next few chapters of Amos, and Amos will get easier. It's kind of heavy right now. It's a little hard to see the hope here when God's going, I'm coming to kill you, and I'm coming to destroy you, and you're going into exile, and you're going to lose in war, and I'm coming to kill you. It's going to have another side, because this is the way prophecy works with God, because God always keeps a remnant. God always holds out promise and always holds out hope, even in the midst of sin. Because there's always hope of forgiveness, even in the minor prophets. But Judah, we're not really interested in Judah. This prophetic word comes against Judah and probably the shock and awe that goes with it. We thought it was only our enemies that we're losing. But now we get to where we're going to spend most of our time for the next about six and a half chapters. Verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four. Because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. And he will go on and he'll talk about a man and his son violating a woman. They'll go on and talk about this ongoing pattern of taking garments in collateral and and the destruction that they've done. And God says, I'm coming to get you. And it's interesting because... It's common human decency mixed with law. And the promise of God's vengeance is because Israel of all people should have known better. The phrasing in verses 7 and 8 is actually a little bit different. Because as this challenge comes of all the sin, there's a sense. God saying, you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this. Well, we've got the foreign nations. It's one charge. Philistines, Gaza, you did this. Tyre, you did this. Judah, you did this. Israel, you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this. The rich are abusing the poor. The powerful are abusing the weak. Those who have are treating those who do not have with contempt. We've got garment keeping in verse 8, for example, and that's forbidden. You don't take someone's garment. How do they stay warm, especially the poor? I was a little shocked when I first started studying, because I'm thinking, it's Israel, it's the Middle East, like how cold does it get? It gets cold. I had uh, students spent uh, a year studying in Jerusalem and talking to them about what was it like, and they said it's great being in Jerusalem for Christmas and terrible, because no one knows what heat is in this place, because it's usually hot, but around Christmas, there's snow and it's cold. You don't take someone's garment, they're going to freeze to death, that's what you wrap yourself in, that garment that's talked about, that's your blanket. It's what keeps you warm at night. We've got sexual exploitation here in verse 7 of a father and son probably forcing themselves on a servant girl or a slave girl who has no say and cannot protect herself. The rich are not worshipping properly. They're getting drunk in the house of God. And 9 to 11, God comes and confronts Israel. Here is who I am, God says. I destroyed the Amorites as Israel advanced. I brought you from the land of Egypt. I raised up. And then he comes back and points out, as I've done all this, you've even made your Nazarites violate their sacred vows. Israel has abused the people entrusted to them. And it's interesting that we get to that because we've just finished the first part of our study of the book of Acts, and we'll go back to Acts after we do Amos. But I'd like to spend some time Old Testament and some time New Testament. 
But we just looked at Stephen, Stephen's charge. There was never a prophet your forefathers did not persecute or kill. And here, Amos' charge, you've even forced your, your Nazarites to violate the very vows that they have taken, to be devoted to God. And God has said, a Nazarite is to do certain things and not to do other certain things. And you've made them fail. What you've done is wrong. God is now coming to punish them for their sin. The archer will not stand his ground, verse 15. Even the most courageous will flee. The hand of God is against them. And Amos is going to spend the next chapters describing how angry God is. I was shocked when I first started doing the Minor Prophets because I thought with the Minor Prophets, God's principal charge would be, you did not worship me right when he speaks to his people. Now that's true. And that's certainly the case what we see here with Judah. When God comes to Judah, he says, you did not worship me properly. But that's actually just kind of an in-passing thing because theologically, we need to really grab hold of something. And that is this. We cannot separate the worship of God from properly treating one another. We can't separate the worship of God and everything that he expects from how we then will treat our fellow human beings. In the New Testament... Jesus is asked, what's the most important command? He says, I'm going to give you two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we'll get authors saying really interesting things like, you can't say you love God and then hate your brother. And what we're going to see here in Amos, and actually if we're going to study the whole Minor Prophets at some point possibly, is this idea that I must, I, I must respect I must show compassion for, I must have concern for my, help, my fellow human being. I must be concerned about how I treat them. I must treat them fairly and equitably. I can't lie to my neighbors. I can't steal from them. I can't mistreat the poor because my relationship with God is affected by how I treat others just as my right walk with God affects how I treat others. I can't separate treatment of other from love of God. And interestingly, the minor prophet spends an awful lot of time with God saying to the Israelites, you violated each other. I went in thinking God was going to be really mad. You're not worshiping me properly. Happens a lot. But oftentimes God says, you do not treat each other properly. The rich don't treat the poor properly. The haves treat the haves nots badly. This group is mistreating this group. And it, in in the start of Amos, we're seeing this common human decency side, even with the surrounding nations, where God doesn't challenge them saying, you didn't follow the Torah because they don't know Moses. But there's just some common sense stuff we don't do. There's common sense things that all humanity knows. How should we treat one another? Well, what do we do with this? First observation I want to make. And the first couple of sermons in Amos are going to be a little heavy. And I don't apologize for that in a sense, because sometimes we need to be reminded our walk with God is serious. It's, it's profoundly serious. And our walk with God is directly linked to our walk with one another. And so we need to seriously consider how do we treat others and how do we worship God? First observation, God's judgment takes into consideration who the people are that he's talking to. His expectations of Judah and of Israel are different from his expectations of Gaza and Ammon, and Edom, and Tyre. He looks at what we've been entrusted with. He looks at what we should know, and he judges us accordingly. It's a little bit like when I teach college. I do not expect a freshman to know what a third year knows. I mark the papers differently, because a third year should know how to do footnotes and do all the challenging stuff and all the things that keep them up at night. I'm kind of curious to know if my Bible school students are still having nightmares about their papers. Still having nightmares? I'm getting a nod there. Um, now and again, I still have classroom dreams. It's a little strange. We don't put the same expectations. As parents, we do not expect our teenagers to conduct themselves to the same standard that we expect a six-year-old to. Insert your own parenting joke here. I can go a couple of different directions. When God comes and confronts these different groups, it's according to what's been entrusted. And notice, the more that you're given, the more you're accountable. The sin of Judah is more subtle. The sin of Israel is not nearly as serious as the sin of some of these other nations. And yet, 
God deals with them according to what they've been entrusted with. God's judgment takes into consideration who it is. And so for those of us who walked with Jesus a long time, does God have a higher expectation? Yes, he does. It's part of the maturing process. This is why if you consider the example of Israel, Israel sins in some very creative ways in the wilderness, and and God wants to destroy them and doesn't. And we get them into the promised land. But then we get Moses at the one point, and Moses is told to speak to the rock, and he strikes it with his staff. And it almost, I feel bad for Moses because it's like all he does is he hits it instead of speaks to it. And after all the sin of the Israelites, he does that and he's not allowed in the promised land. And then we have 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul tells us actually the stone was Jesus. So he, it's just this, this strange theological moment. I never saw that in the text, but Paul says that he struck Christ. Okay, now I kind of understand why it's serious, but also keep this in mind. The expectation on Moses, he'd been in the presence of God. He answered for more than even, say, Joshua does or King David. The more we're entrusted, the more we answer for. Second thing, God's judgment proves our love of God and our love of others is linked. Let me say that again. God's judgment proves our love of God and our love of others is linked. And it's linked together in this really interesting way. I've already alluded to Jesus' words. Love God and love your neighbor. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 says, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. And in 1 John, he links love of God and love of each other, just as Jesus did. And we're seeing God do the same thing here. Leviticus 19, verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love the Lord, sorry, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Matthew chapter 22, we'll spend some time on this. My love of other and my love of God are intimately linked. And so I need to stop and ask, how am I doing in my care for those around me? How, how am I doing in my love of my neighbors, my family, my coworkers? And finally, our third idea. God's judgment leaves open the door to grace and mercy. We're going to hold this one out a little bit. We've got to kind of trust at this point, Amos, because we haven't seen a lot of grace and mercy here. The best grace and mercy we're seeing is you're going to lose in war. The best grace and mercy that we see here is that God's going to come and he's going to war against them for a while. And we know historically that they'll live. But there's this idea hanging over. If God's coming and confronting, maybe, just maybe, things can be changed. And one of the patterns that we're going to see emerge in Amos, as the word of God comes, as God speaks through the prophet and he begins to confront the people through the prophet, there'll be places where Amos is going to say, as you begin to walk with God, a new day is coming. A new hope is coming. A restoration is coming. And we kind of have to trust for that and kind of feel for it, that in the middle of what is a very difficult text, as these different groups have been confronted by God for their sin, the fact God's confronting them does leave open, what if we repent? And of course, if we read ahead a little bit, we get to the story of Jonah. I love the story of Jonah. Because there's not even a a call to repent in Jonah. God simply says, 40 days the city's going to be overthrown. That's the message of Jonah. And the city hears it and they repent, going, well, maybe God will spare us. And of course, if we read the rest of the story, sorry, spoiler alert. God's wrath relents. And Nineveh is spared. God's judgments take into consideration who it is who has sinned. God's judgments prove our love of God and our love of others is linked. And God's judgment leaves open the door to grace and to mercy. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for Amos and his words to us. Lord, they're heavy words. Would you show us what it means to love our neighbors ourself? Mindful of Judah and your challenge to them, you didn't worship me properly. May that not be true of us either. But Lord, may we be a people who walks with you faithfully. May we be a people who loves our neighbors faithfully. 
And Lord God, show us how to share this with those around us. I'm struck by how as you come to these four nations and you confront them for their sin, common human decency, you hold them accountable. We live in a nation that doesn't believe in you, doesn't call on your name. When your judgment comes, it will be for the sin that they knowingly have committed. Lord, use us to hold back your wrath and to extend your grace and mercy that forgiveness might be sought and forgiveness might be found. And Lord, for anybody who's watching, listening, who doesn't know who you are, would you speak to their heart? And would you... Lord, would you speak to their heart and give them the courage to see what it is that you're saying and to respond accordingly? In the name of Jesus, amen. So we go to the benediction this morning from Jude 24. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. If you're in danger of the wrath of God and you want to talk about it, if you don't know who Jesus is and you want to talk about it, call me. Call one of the elders. We've got, uh, we've got email addresses that are available. And I realize in a COVID season, that's, it's a difficult season to connect, but there are ways. If you've got questions about what it means, if you've got questions about what it means for God to say you're accountable for what you do, if you realize I need to talk to somebody about this, please reach out to us. Love to talk to you. I know some of the elders uh, are, are also ready and uh, willing. Some of them are away right now. Um, but as the summer wraps up, everybody's around. We'd all love to talk to you. Leave this with you. This is from Jude 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen, and God bless you.